Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios at NPR affiliate WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You know, as a parent, I have a daughter that's a senior in college right now, and watching her grow up and become a young adult over the last several years, um, and as somebody that's trained in the media field, one of the things that's continually fascinated me is the way that her media consumption completely differs from my own and 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 my peers um, of a certain age group. Um, and in fact, she's not alone. We all know that if we have kids. A recent survey by Pew Research reported that 46% of teens report using the internet, quote, almost constantly, and 95% of them report using it daily. The number who report using it nearly constantly has nearly doubled only since 2015. So the point is, is we know that the students in our classrooms, whether they're college students or K-12 students, they are consuming a lot of media um, through their phones, through their mobile devices. And that's what we want to talk about today. There's a newly released book called The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People is released with a 2022 copyright date. Um, the book was released by the Project Censored and the Media Revolution Collective. We're blessed to have two authors um, that contributed to that collaborative effort in, in with us today. Dr. Allison Butler is the director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communication at UMass Amherst. In addition to directing that program, she also runs teacher training programs in media literacy for K-12 educators. Also with us is Nolan Higdon, a lecturer at Merrill College and at UC Santa Cruz. He has authored multiple books and publications on the topic of media literacy. Allison and Nolan, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I, I want to start uh, on a on a broad sense and just talk about you know the explosion of media and how people are consuming it. You know, sort of related to the statistics from Pew. Um, we know that that our our students are consuming media in vastly different ways than in generations. You know, I'm a 50 year old than than my generation did. But even even going back even 10 years, they're still consuming it differently. As you all have started to research um, and and provide guidance on critical media literacy. What are some of your observations about just how students are consuming media and what some of the implications of those are in how they're developing socially, personally, intellectually um, as they mature? Allison, why don't you kick off with the answer to that first? Uh, sure. I would say that um, one of the things that we really thought about very carefully when writing media and me was we didn't want to talk down to young people and in fact we're given the directive from the publishers to look up to young people so part of what we want to do when um, working with teachers or working with young people in the media is start by listening to them. Um, what are they using? Why are they using it? Uh, what are their own impressions and their own interpretations of it? How does it make sense in their world? Certainly um, in the past couple years, COVID has been a conversation with that directly that we really couldn't or can't turn off any of our media mm -hmm. because that was the way that we were connected to the world. And yet the flip side of that sometimes is that we seem to punish young people for spending too much time with the media, even though we don't have a definition of what too much is. Mm -hmm. uh, so our work is really begins by trying to better understand how young people are using the media and then share with them uh, maybe the structure or the organization, some of the power 
or behind the media um, and see what it is that we can kind of work on together uh, so that it's not us telling them what to do. I think uh, sometimes those of us who work in critical media literacy get kind of a reputation of being media bashers, that we sort of hate the media. And that's really not the truth. Um, I mean, there's definitely stuff, obviously, that we like or dislike as human beings. But really what we want to try and do is better understand all forms of media as these multidimensional things in our life that deserve attention. Yeah, and I think you hit the the nail on the head there that um, young people are using media uh, differently than, than previous generations, but, but different is not necessarily bad. Um, so taking kind of, um, as Allison said, kind of taking like an honest account of what we're seeing, um, there are potential opportunities with the way that young people are using media. There's also concerns. So the book and, and really a lot of the work Allison and I do is, is focused on talking to young people about how to manage these these competing priorities or competing interests with media uh, to make sure that media is ultimately serving a good a good or positive role in their life versus a negative one. Nolan, since, um, you know, looking back over, you know, one of the things that I always talk about when I'm speaking about media um, and, and media literacy issues, uh, you know, in my role as a dean of communication, I always use the point that the iPhone, if it were a student, would be a freshman in high school right now, which is amazing, you know, the way that it has impacted our lives. Because of the explosion of mobile access to internet, um, what we define as media has drastically changed. Can you comment on sort of how you approach defining what media are and and how that has changed because of mobile digital access to internet technology? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the the advent of, of digital technologies in general, but, but things like smartphones and handheld technologies in particular have really changed the way we talk about media. So it's not just necessarily these devices, it's, it's also these platforms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about media, which is something you would not have done maybe a generation um, or two ago. So when we get into media, it's it's that, you know, sort of legacy media, television, radio, but also the internet, social media, you know, TikTok and things like that um, is what we look at more more broadly. And I think your point about um, the iPhone being a freshman is really, really important. Um, in, in many cases, I think it's a little too early to make declarations about a lot of this media. Um, we're still trying to figure it out. At, at some level, um, what's going on with young people in particular is kind of an experiment, um, right? We're, we're hooking them up to these communication technologies at, at a young age, um, encouraging them to do various things, both in and outside of the classroom. And it's not really clear what the ultimate result of this experiment is going to be. Um, Allison, just sticking with this topic just for another minute or so, um, one of the things that fascinates me about uh, media technology now is it, 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 in my opinion, blurs what we used to say was a fairly bright line between the creator of media messages and the consumer. So if you think about legacy technologies, you had uh, people that produced television shows, that produced music, that produced uh, uh, you know news and information. Um, they were the producers and people consumed that. Now, because of uh, platforms, even looking at things like Spotify and iTunes, um, any of us can really produce content rather easily. Um, what are the implications of the fact that all of us have simultaneously more access to media, but also a much greater ability to be media producers ourselves? 
I mean, I think there's there's several different implications. I think one of the positive implications and one of the ways that we can look at that as, as really exciting is that, especially for our young people, is we have the opportunity, they have the opportunity to be directly involved in their media, that it is not something that they necessarily are watching from a distance or listening to a dis- from a distance or reading from a distance, that they're like deeply involved in its construction and its co-construction. Of course, that leads into a concern, which is that anybody who's doing anything on social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, um, people who are sharing their playlists on Spotify or so on and so forth, any of that stuff, that's work, right? Mm -hmm. That's labor. And for the most part, young people aren't getting paid for that. So I sort of, I play a little game in my classes sometimes where I ask my students if they have jobs and many will raise their hands and I ask them, you know, I I start to look sort of like a doddering old lady at this point, but I'm kind of okay with that where I'm like, how many of you, you know, get paid for your jobs and they keep their hands up. And I'll say, how many of you would be willing at the end of your pay cycle to not get a paycheck? And that's when they start looking at me like I have three heads and I'm like, okay, fine. Like keep playing this with me. How many at the end of your pay cycle would not only be willing to not get paid, but would give your paycheck back to your boss. And at that point they're like, what are you like, what are you doing lady? And it's, that's what we're doing. Doing, right? When we put stuff on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or any of that, we are filling that content. We are doing the labor, but we are not getting paid. We are spending time. Um, we're certainly spending energy. I know that we're spending a lot of emotional energy. It can be very stressful to make sure that you have the exact great picture, the most, you know, most flattering pic put on at the best optimized time. What are, what, so I think, you know, while young people can absolutely be media creators and that can be really cool and really creative, we also need to take that step back and say, what are the labor implications of this? What are the work implications? What is, like, how are we doing this, spending our time doing the work for these companies? but we're not the ones making the money off of it. I don't think it's exclusively a financial relationship, but I do think it is a way of saying we need to think about this as a much more complicated, much more complex part of our lives than um, just for fun. Yeah. Uh, so that that is really an interesting point uh, to expand that even just a little bit. It goes beyond the individual's uh, uh, colonization of private time to become you know, economized by somebody else, even at the institutional level, it happens. So most of our universities, um, athletic programs, esports programs produce content um, because their student, you know, our students want to do that, whether it's broadcasting a game or a esports contest. Most of that content goes onto platforms that do not compensate the students or the university for producing that. But those platforms make a lot of advertising revenue off of it. And so it's, it's, your, your point's really great. I mean, it's, yeah, if you look at, you know, if you look at some of the bosses behind those big, those big tech companies, they're making millions, if not billions. And, you know, the average 14 or 15 year old is not. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's Uh, a really unlevel playing field. Yeah. Nolan, um, a point that is made early in the book that that I found really interesting that I want to tease out a little bit is that, um, 
you all make the point that the consumption of media requires a certain amount of decoding, which, of course, you're trying to enable consumers to have better tools at decoding information through critical thinking. But one of the points you make is that the way we interpret messages from the media are influenced by the interpretive communities to which we uh, affiliate. Can you talk about what interpretive communities are and how that might influence the way that students of all ages would would interpret messages, perhaps? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think... Uh, I think it's important to um, remember that as part of what we do in media literacy is we want to remind people that, that audiences have power, that is audiences are not powerless. So um, big, you know, media conglomerates can send messages at users, but users have the power to reinterpret those. We don't have to necessarily buy or accept um, the media makers messages. Um, but, you know, also as, as part of that, um, we also come from um, communities. And so we, we develop meaning um, in these communities of what these media messages are. And so it's really important to think about how we um, interpret these messages and how we communicate these messages. And that's what we want young people to, to think about is not only what is the message being sent at you, but what is your interpretation of the message? What are, what are you doing with it? How do you relate to it? Um, how does your community relate to it, if you will? And this can become quite an empowering exercise because if you look at like a lot of the stuff in the, the 20th century, um, particularly the, the mid 20th century, really focused on this idea that that audiences were, were powerless. So um, it was we should hide everybody from film and hide everybody from television because um, we lack the capability to interpret the messages. But the opposite is is true. Um, you know, we as users have the power to reinterpret these messages. And as you two were, were talking about just a moment ago, um, there's an increased opportunity to not only change our interpretations, but to make media messages. So to make messages that run counter to some of the dominant messages in media. And that's what the text is, is getting at um, in, in the part you're discussing. And so an interpretive community... Um... It can, am I correct in assuming that the interpretive communities that, that students would belong to, or even us as adults for that matter, is both a lens for interpreting messages, but it's also, as you're saying, um, perhaps uh, constitutive of how we would create and recreate our own narrative surrounding those messages. Is that fair? Yes. Um, collectively, an interpretive community... Uh, means that it's a community that shares certain um, strategies or methods for how they use media, um, engage with media, and, and interpret messages. Um, and so in that way, um, interpretive communities share a lot of these same strategies, if you will. So just to tease out one more part of this, um, examples of interpretive communities could be broad, uh, you know, uh, across an entire culture and then get progressively smaller. How would you give, you know, examples of some of the types of interpretive communities to which individuals might belong? Like an age old example, I think that that folks often give is like, you know, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Um, you know, students can interpret it as having like a theme of, of love, for example. Um, but it's not necessarily because the, the theme of love is located in the text, but it's because the, the readers have a similar interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's those interpretive lenses or the ways we, we look at things um, 
is what's shared in interpretive community. And I think one thing to add to that is that uh, we'd want to we'd want to tease out some of the the words that we use to understand media. Much of our media. Con- much of our conversation about media is social, right? I mean, I know there's the whole thing of social media, which is absolutely something that needs to be deconstructed. And in fact, much social media, I would argue, is actually very antisocial because we use so much mm-hmm. of it alone. But also what we're doing in um, in our interpretive communities or in our social groups is talking about, right? We are We become each other's gatekeepers that's often used gatekeeper is often used to talk about like news or current events but i think we can extend it absolutely to talk about like i'm going to share with you in my friendship group or my family group a tv show or a song or something that i think that you would like and that then we can share um we can share a conversation about it so it's it's a way of understanding some of our media use as being uh social or socially connected Mm -hmm. uh that obviously can happen much more quickly these days with, say, for example, liking something or retweeting something or something along those lines. Uh, but it is not actually all that different from what we might have done in generations past where we would have shared a story about something or said to somebody, I encourage you to read, watch, listen to, etc., cetera, uh, under the assumption that that person that we're talking to or that group that we're talking to is going to have something similar in common with us. We, we look for, you know, we look for ways to share. And as human beings, we are storytellers mm-hmm. from, you know, time from the beginning of time. So we're sharing how we tell stories and what stories we think are maybe told in an enti- in an in- engaging way. So, uh, a big focus, obviously, of the book, and, and we will get to the details of this in a few moments, but a big focus of the book is is to equip consumers of media with tools for critically evaluating media, right? So if, if you think about interpretive communities, to what extent would any tool set be influenced by the communities to which we belong? So, and and, and you know, the point that I'm making as you think about that that question, obviously the polarized aspect of our public discourse right now has, uh, you know, individuals in, in multiple camps that interpret messages through their unique lenses of those camps. Um, if we were to try to equip them with critical thinking, there's one view that would say that there's a set of critical thinking tools that could go across all of those different perspectives. But then another way of of looking at it is that each interpretive community or camp or polarized opposite viewpoint, however you want to phrase that, would have their own set of critical thinking tools that may or may not be biases, right? So how do you tease out sort of providing general tools that would be interpreted differently perhaps by unique interpretive communities or, 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 or groups of people? I think, I mean, I think the uh, critical thinking is, is certainly a, a part of it, but I, I think it's a mistake to, if we're talking about um, sort of overcoming the hyper-partisan divide, I think critical thinking is, is a step in that direction, but, but it's not the whole mm-hmm. journey. Um, I think also reflection on communication strategies, um, you know, culturally, but certainly in our schools, we need to spend more time uh, teaching constructive dialogue Mm -hmm. and in the process, look at the tools we use to communicate, such as social media, and really reflect, are they actually conducive to constructive dialogue? 
Um, are we actually listening? Are we learning? Are we understanding? Or are we just reacting? Um, you know, I think of something like Twitter that only gives you a handful of characters to post something that doesn't allow you to have a lot of context for what you post, um, nor does it give the reader a lot of context for what you mean. Mm -hmm. um, when you're dealing with very important or sensitive issues, that means that a lot of the necessary context or shall we say background information um, isn't supplied. And so it leads to a pretty vapid or surface level dialogue about possibly very important issues. So I think in addition to, to critical thinking, um, we also need to practice those constructive um, dialogue. And the way we connect that to, to media, to your point, so much of our, our, our sources, our interpretation of the world come from a lot of these media sources. Mm -hmm. um, and as uh, many have noted, particularly our news media has a, has a um, economic model that depends upon hyper-partisan narratives um, to draw audiences, to cheer for the good guy, their party, and boo the bad guy, which is the, the other party. Um, well, what that leads to is not only a, a uh, misunderstanding of the political process, not to mention your own party, um, you also have a, a caricature of the other party. And we, we've seen this in, in polls show that Americans' number one fear is other Americans. Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, teaching teaching young people critical thinking is important, but also applying that to media and, and focused on the aspects of constructive dialogue are ne necessary for overcoming that um, hyper-partisan uh, communities that you're discussing. Absolutely. Go ahead, Allison. I was, yeah, I mean, I think to add to, to what Nolan is saying, so a lot of what we also talk about with critical media literacy is asking questions, right? I think, especially in our classrooms today, uh, and with this sort of hyper-partisan divide and the polarization that is presented to us, um, many of our students feel like they need to know the right answer, but they haven't necessarily learned how to ask questions. Uh, and so there's this emphasis on making sure that you get it right. But my thought to that would be to get what right? Like, let's play around with asking questions. Let's be a little bit less concerned for right now with what the answer is. Uh, and so to sort of dig into some of what we're looking at or some of what we're being presented with, uh, you know, using current events, for example, like before we even start reading the article, although I think that that's obviously really important, why is this on the front page, digital or otherwise, right? Wh where did this headline come from? Why is this being published today? Uh, to really kind of take a step back from the noise and, also, and just sort of say like, what can we learn about this as, as something that has been told to us as audiences is important for us to learn about. And that might be a way by, by asking questions is, is we're not necessarily thinking about whose side is right or whose side is wrong, but what is it that we are being presented with? Um, and, and to Nolan's point about something like Twitter only having like a limited number of characters, and so therefore we can't really share the context, well then what is the value of sharing something on Twitter? Where might Twitter be beneficial, but where might we need to share it in a different platform or a different technology to provide some degree of context. So, you know, one of the things that we'll do sometimes with uh, media literacy work in classrooms is take, like, start with a message, it, it, anything that 
that might need to be shared as somehow as a story? What would it be as a Twitter, as a tweet? What would it be as an Instagram post? What would it be as an essay? Uh, and then playing around with the idea that when you change the format, you can expand to or contract from what your message is. So what are the key elements? Uh, so really playing around with that idea of, of questioning and interrogation to get to have a better understanding of, of the structure of the messages before we even get to the content of them. So both of you have, you know, very eloquently, you know, noted that a large part of what you're trying to do in the book is to equip individuals with an understanding of how to ask questions about the media they are consuming. Let's, let's talk about some of the specific types of questions that they might ask. Um, so one of the, one of the things that you all analyze in, um, in, in, in the middle of the book, um, is how to ask questions about the way in which arguments are constructed, uh, and the way in which people draw inferences from data. Can, can you talk about if you were coaching um, a set of students or a set of teachers who are working with students, what are the ways that they might use some of the principles surrounding argumentation and, 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 and interpretation to start to begin to analyze things that they're consuming in the media that would be advocacy positions? I mean, you could, uh, I mean, there's, there's multiple ways um, to do it. I always think um, having students pick examples of real world things that they're engaging with um, usually engages students in the classroom process. So um, if we're, if we're looking at argumentation, um, ask them, you know, what is a recent argument they, they've seen uh, maybe in an online space or television um, and use that as a, as a classroom example, um, apply some of these principles to it. What evidence is in here? What inferences are, are made? Um, you know, where do you stand based on that? Uh, those can be like very um, valuable opportunities for students to apply what they're learning in the classroom to the content they're using outside of the classroom. And I would say you could also do, I, I absolutely agree with that. And also the exact opposite, right? What is being, what stories are out there? What arguments are out there that you, the student have zero interest in, but why do you think they're making headlines, right? What, what is this argument that might have nothing to do with your life, but some for, you know, some technology, some form of media has determined that it's really important. Like, where are you in that situation? Because I think a lot of what happens with young people often is that, and understandably so, is that they are left out of conversations. They are certainly not necessarily part of the headlines or, or the way the headlines are framed. So in addition to playing around with the idea of what is an argument that you are invested in and how can you understand it? Some of that automatic critical distance from being ignored in the conversation can help uh, deconstruct some of that language as well. It's um, So as, as the two of you were talking about that, um, one of the things that we've been discussing in my family um, recently, there was a new um, docu-series that, that Amazon dropped called Ancient Apocalypse. Um, and and I, I won't remember the name of the uh, the main narrator of this uh, off the top of my head, but he essentially makes arguments about an ancient civilization that um, was far advanced that that we do not have accurately represented in in history. Um, and what's interesting about this is that 
there are uh, archaeologists and people in the archaeological community that say that this person is just talking through junk science. And so it's really fascinating when you watch the series, you're like, wow, that's really fascinating. And, and my daughter and I are both watching this series. And then to read the counter arguments from you know, people who have, uh, you know, that do research in this field that say that it's bunk and, and then to start to put those two things together to really critically evaluate them. It's really fascinating. And that's the type of thing that I hear you saying is that these debates about what constitutes good arguments are in front of our children all the time, but we don't often help them think through how to decipher the way that one side and their arguments interact with another. I think these days in particular, part of what can, part of our media use or our, our, our presentation of media is that it all encourages us to go really fast, right? Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you can super fast, just scroll with a thumb through Instagram, through Twitter, through any of these, we, we are encouraged by the structure of the technology to just zip through without paying that much of attention, right? I think part of our work in critical media literacy is to ask ourselves, ask our students, um, ask our, our conversational companions, if you will, to mm -hmm. slow down right? What is there? Like what happens when we stop scrolling and start looking? And so to take your example of, of the ancient apocalypse docu-series versus the, uh, you know, archaeological research, this is, these are not areas in, in any way, shape or form in which I would consider myself even amateur, let alone yeah, expert, yeah. right? Um, and I could probably watch that docu-series, any one of us could just watch it straight through, right? Like no mm -hmm. problem, just hit play and it could go. I think part of what we might want to think about with critical media literacy is now actually let's slow down with that. What is this person saying? If I really do want to learn more about a potential incredibly sophisticated ancient civilization, I have to actually listen really closely to these words. And then if at all possible, depending on the format, this may or may not be more possible uh, or more likely is I should also probably be reading the credits, um, mm -hmm. looking at if they share any of their citations, if they share any of their research, when they're talking about material, like when they're talking about stuff? Are they providing evidence for it? Uh, what kind of evidence is the archaeologist? Just because that archaeologist has a PhD doesn't necessarily make them um, correct. It is how they apply that PhD, right? Where right. is their evidence? How do they tell that story? So I think we, we have so much that can come at us, and yet we are not necessarily engaging thoroughly with that. Let's do more with less, right? Let's let's really dig into this and see how these stories are providing us with what type of information uh, and spend more time thinking about that. So one of the other um, issues that you all bring up in the book is uh, different types of literacies that are important if you are going to be a critical consumer of information. Um, one of the great things about uh, various types of digital and social medias are that uh, the visual aspect of, of uh, communication uh, becomes uh, very important in the way that information is represented, and it allows each of us to represent information visually um, in ways that you know we wouldn't have been able to do before. 
so looking at the issue of visual literacy, Nolan, why why is that important um, for people to be to have skills in visual literacy when they're consuming social media right now or or other types of media? Yeah, like any um, you know any form of, of communication, uh, media makers send messages visually. Um, you know what you see is is a message, and how you interpret it is part of that that message. So. Thinking about the uh, production process of how that or why that image was made, um, if it's on social media, why it was posted, by by who and when, what captions are around it, um, these all tell us uh, more and more about the message being sent um, through the visual process. And I think we need to disabuse ourselves, um, you know, which of this idea of what you see is is what you get at a, at a surface level. It's, it's important to, to dig deeper. Um, you know, not only to, to understand the message, but also to, to be cognizant of the fact that, um, you know, visuals can and are altered. Um, this, this isn't just pictures, but also like videos, um, mm-hmm. things like deep fakes, uh, which look pretty um, convincing, uh, but may actually be altered videos. They're, they're not real. Um, or sometimes editing can, can play a role. So if you see one thing, you see something else right after it, um, it, it may be send a certain message or put a certain idea in your head, but that's a choice by the, the, the media maker. It may not necessarily be um, reality or, or, or honest for what you're seeing. So it's a very important part um, of the literacy process. And I think to your point about social media, it's really important because as we scroll, we scroll past these images that, that shape our understanding of our world so quickly. And it's Allison's point, that's why we need to slow down. But we, we scroll past these so quickly as they're shaping, we, we don't spend time to actually analyze them and, and interrogate the message being sent at us. I know it's hard without a specific example, you know, that we're focusing on, but what's a, you know, what's a strategy that you personally use when you are looking at an image that captures your attention and then, and then you begin to critically analyze, um, the, the image using some of the, you know, critical thinking skills that you have? I'm always, you know, uh, it's like you said, it's sort of tough to say without an example, but I'm always kind of immediately interested in, in who posted it and and for what purpose. Um, so if it's like a, you know, news article or something that's posted on social media and the picture makes, uh, the centerpiece of that story, the person who's the focus of that story look like, stupid or tired or angry. Um, I wonder how that's connected to the story that's being told in the news article. Um, mm-hmm. Why did they make that decision? Why do they want to shape my perception that this person is you know, stupid or tired or whatever before I read this um, article? Um, same thing goes with uh, when they're talking about a community of people, um, whether it be an identity, a racial identity group or a gender group or a region. I look at the picture and I look at what aspects the picture highlights of that community. And I ask why, you know, why are they showing um, more poverty or more wealth? Why are they showing more happiness or more sadness? Uh, Why are they showing more like commercial and and industry and things like that? So always asking those, those questions about every decision down to the granular detail can really Mm -hmm. help you understand uh, the ways in which a media maker is trying to shape your perception of something. Allison, one of the other um, areas of literacy that that I I noticed in the book that I thought was really fascinating was algorithmic literacy. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so algorithmic literacy is something that um, I think really needs to be a, a, a 
front and center in our conversations these days because the algorithm, so, so much of us are on digital media, right? And anything we do on digital media uh, captures information about us, right? Not maybe there, it definitely captures it on a granular granular level. But what's more important is that it captures sort of habits, times, choices, etc. And it builds a formula and it builds a formula that or they build a formula because I think often with algorithms is the easiest assumption is that it's, you know, just a computer program. But it's a computer program that was created by human beings, right? So to mm-hmm. to have an, a result of an algorithm means that somebody had to program in a certain code that captured information. So even though it's connected directly to our digital media, it also starts with humans. And humans obviously have uh, biases or... Um, uh, belief systems that are going to get built into that coding. So that coding already has some degree of interpretation or impression. And then what happens is it starts to learn, the, the code itself starts to learn a little bit more about us. And so we can get put into these sort of very comfortable spaces where within the digital realm, everything I agree with is right there and available for me. And I don't actually have to see much or read much or hear much that I disagree with because the coding has learned my habits uh, in such a way that it presents to me kind of what I already want to believe. So part of the work of algorithmic literacy is to say, who are we in this digital space? What is our digital footprint and how can we understand it better? If we type in a search inquiry into some sort of search function and within seconds, an advertisement comes back to us about that, what is that? Like that means that our information has been out there. And I, I think most people are probably pretty familiar with that right now, that the adverts kind of come back right away, but they also come back in not just from our own searches. So I'll, I'll give you an example of communication uh, between uh me and Nolan with some of the work that we've been doing, we've been doing some writing on uh, surveillance technologies in education. And, you know, he's in California and I'm in Massachusetts. So obviously we're sending a lot of this stuff via email. And I sent him a draft of something that I wrote uh, that I, I sent the draft as an attachment. And one of the lines in in the original draft, we've since deleted that, but one of the lines in the original draft was, so you're look if you're looking for a cheap Caribbean vacation, and that was in a Word document that I attached to an email and sent it off to Nolan and kind of went about my day. And as soon as I kind of got back to my computer, the first ad that popped up was for cheap Caribbean vacations. <laughs> and it wasn't even a web search that I had done, right? Uh-huh. It was it was an attachment. It was an email attachment, a Word document that I put on as an email attachment. But because it's through a digital platform, it is being read by this, you know, behind the scenes coding. And there's now that is part of my digital footprint. And it was weeks before those advertisements stopped popping up. And I'm actually somebody who doesn't do any, like I don't turn off advertisements uh, because I really want to see what is like, what are the codes thinking Mm -hmm. about me and what, what determinations are they making about me? And then how can I better understand uh, 
the role that I'm playing as a media user. So I, as annoying as the pop-up ads are, I actually prefer to leave them on so that I feel like I can learn a little bit more about what's happening. But when you have young people who, for example, might have um, like school-issued technologies or obviously their own personal technologies, there's so much data that is being given away anytime mm-hmm. they use those technologies. And part of our work with algorithmic literacy is to try and help again, ourselves 100%, and also students and young people and teachers learn more about what is happening behind the scenes in that digital work. Yeah, I think we've, you know, all, uh, we've all had also experiences exactly like that, where you have a conversation with your partner or somebody around an Alexa or, or yes. even, even your iPhone with Siri. And then all of a sudden you start to see that happening on your uh, Facebook feed or whatever. Yep. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's eerie. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what more to say about that because we all have that experience. So it's, but it's presented to us as a like convenience. it's. You might feel that it's eerie. I certainly feel that it's eerie, but it's presented to us as super convenient. And yeah. we're gonna, we're yeah. here, Alexa and Echo and Google and all these things are here to make your life easier, to make your life safer, to make you more efficient in your day. Uh, we, we are very quickly encouraged to forget the eeriness of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nolan, uh, you know, the, the, the advancement of media is not going to stop. Um, you know, it, it's going to continue to evolve. Um, and we've talked about some of the ways that it's evolved, obviously, in this podcast. As you think going forward, what do you think it means to be a good digital citizen now? Um, well, I think being a good digital citizen is is thinking about how these tools can be used uh, to to strengthen democracy and serve the common good. Um, you know, as, as we've talked about on this call and talked about in this book, and um, there's a lot of critiques to be made about uh, what we're doing with media right now or the way that the social media operate, et cetera. But I think it's equally important to, to remember that any of these tools can be used for anything. Um, it just so happens. Uh, that, you know, the, the cultural context and the political economy in which we operate, they've been designed to, to operate the way they currently operate, but that doesn't mean they always have to. Uh, so I think it's also important to have an imagination. Um, you know, what, what might these tools, um, how might these tools look if they were built in a way that focused on serving our democracy or serving the common good? What if the community standards were actually set by the community instead of, say, unaccountable oligarchs in Silicon Valley? So I think those are those are critical questions to ask. I think also, you know, reminding people um, that some of the content that we we have and some of the communication tools uh, we use, you can use them now to to better serve your community and strengthen democracy. So, for example, if folks access journalism online for better informing themselves to be more active participants in their democracy. That's a much better way to use journalism than to just read headlines and sort of post uh, to, to virtue signal your point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to using these communication technologies, as Allison pointed out, you know, it's really incredible that from the opposite coast of the United States, her and I get to work on all of these um, projects. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also an opportunity there for us to work around the globe collectively uh, to ameliorate uh, problems around the globe, um, also to strengthen things we like around the globe. 
So thinking about how you can use the tools in that way versus getting in fights online or, you know, being divisive, I think those are kind of important things for folks to think about who want to be media citizens versus passive media consumers. Uh, Nolan, before I leave you on this, um, so this is not going to be easy for you to answer concisely, and I apologize for this, but at the time that we're recording this, we're in the midst of um, the dumpster fire that is Twitter at the moment because of the Elon Musk takeover. What are thoughts that you've drawn from seeing that happen and how that, I, I think it causes all of us to reflect on the fact that something like Twitter is not just a public good, it is a private entity that is designed to make money, but then you see all this process go forward. And I mean, what, what are some thoughts that you have about that and how that reinforces some of the messages that you have in the book? Yeah. In, in a, in a weird way, I see a lot of um, what's going on Twitter being um, like an analogy for sort of what we saw with, with Donald Trump, um, mm -hmm. that, that Donald Trump's behavior uh, really mirrored a lot of the corruption and graft that was already going on in Washington, D.C. He just did it unapologetically. So he shined a light on the, the problems that exist. Um, and that way, he's, he's more of a symptom um, than a cause of problems. I think the same thing can be said for Elon Musk with Twitter. Um, there's been a serious problem where unaccountable oligarchs have controlled some of the most influential communication tools that we use in our democracy. And, um, you know, they've, they've often... Um, privileged profit over the people. You know, we see that with um, the Francis Hogan whistleblower from Facebook. Um, you know, we've seen that with Edward Snowden's releases and other things. And I think Elon Musk, much like Trump, is just unapologetically doing the same thing. He's setting the standards that he thinks is best uh, mm -hmm. without any democratic oversight. Uh, the, you know, many, many users who use this platform and depend on it are sort of stuck accepting whatever he decides uh, to one degree or another. And that's really no different than the industry has been. So I know um, it's being reported as a, as a disaster, but I, I look at it more again as kind of a wake-up call, an illumination of how we should think mm -hmm. about ways in which the community can take control of these platforms to better use them for our own purposes. Very good. Allison, um, the last question I have for the for you is, if, I, if I'm a teacher and I'm I, and I understand the the imperative of talking with my students more about some of these issues. Besides looking at your book, which of course I'll recommend and provide a link to, wh what are some ways that teachers might start get started to wrap their head around how to make this a more vibrant part of their classroom? Uh, I think there's a couple, I mean, some of the official ways would be um, some of the other work that Nolan and I and our colleagues have done that are that are absolutely always available to teachers, right? We both work with an organization called Mass Media Literacy, which does teacher trainings in media literacy. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, we would also advocate for teachers working directly with their families or with their administrators to say, hey, this needs to be a part of our school. Like, how can we make this a part of our school? And then to take a little bit of a step back for teachers in training, uh, pre-service teachers who are currently working in their graduate programs or working towards their certifications, if and whenever possible, taking a course in media literacy. Because we all know that teachers are overworked. And I mm -hmm. think that... Um, uh, they've certainly they were certainly overworked before the pandemic, but similar to what Nolan was saying about sort of shining a light on uh, 
the, the pandemic helped us see really crystal clear um, how overworked teachers were. And so we're not actually asking, we don't want teachers to do more work. They're doing enough. We want teachers to be able to do their work more effectively. Uh, mm-hmm. So if there's an opportunity for teachers to do any kind of um, professional development, or again, as I said, teacher trainers, teachers in training to take a media literacy course so that all of this work can be woven into, integrated into the work that they are doing in their classrooms, that it is not separate, something separate from or something on top of, but something that is integrated into, that it's built into their lesson planning, that it's built into their course progression. Uh, you know, young people are exposed to and participating in media from extraordinarily young ages, and yet we don't teach about it formally in our classrooms. This would be an opportunity to start weaving that into a formal part of our classroom learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know the example that we talked about previously about the the docu series on Netflix. I mean that example and and also the counter arguments against it could be used in any number of disciplines and fields. Uh, as part of a classroom discussion on ancient history, on archaeology, on uh, interpreting data. I mean, it, 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 as you said, it could be integrated uh, with just a little guidance on, on uh, just about any topic. Absolutely. We learn so much about our world from the media, right? I mean, using your example of the ancient apocalypse, right? We learn about history from our media. Mm -hmm. We read statistics, particularly around election times, but not exclusively so. Uh, We hear a lot about um, the environment from our media, right? Maybe some of us do absolutely have firsthand experience with climate change, depending on where or how we live, but we Mm -hmm. learn about it around the globe from our media. This can be put into all of our courses. Media literacy, critical media literacy can be an organizational tool for math, science, social studies, English literature, health, public health, etc. It can be the way in which we frame our learning and our teaching. Absolutely. Um, Allison and Nolan, I really appreciate your time uh, today talking about your book, and um, I wish you well as you continue to be advocates for um, helping all of us be better consumers of information. Thank you so much. Thank you. My guests today were two collaborators on the book called The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. Uh, We'll have a link to that book in the text accompanying the podcast, and my guests were Allison Butler and Nolan Hingdon. Um, Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. Our associate producer and audio engineer is Adam Rich in the studios, and I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. If you have questions, comments, or future ideas for other topics, please don't hesitate to reach out to us by email or or through social media, as the case may be, and we would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you all have a great day.